In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Have you ever noticed how the past seems to be so much better than the present? Now, I remember when I was a kid, my parents used to say something to the effect of, well, when I was a kid, and then they would go on to some explanation of how they bemoaned how bad my existence was in comparison to their existence in the past. You know, when I was a kid, man, it was good. We didn't have to lock the doors at night because there were no evil people in the world. And kids, they, they learned to drive when they were just eight years old on the farm. And parents didn't have to worry about where their kids would be. They could run wild and free because those kids were good kids. And Barney Fife was always on patrol in Mayberry. It was a good time, right? I mean, and, and to be honest with you, it's not just my mom and dad. I do that too. You know, with my kids, I'm like, you won't believe what it was like whenever I was growing up. It wasn't like when you're growing up. Well, see, this is, I think, a a common human reality. I don't think this is unique to anybody. In fact, Dr. Kerry Morwedge of Carnegie Mellon is a psychologist, and he did a study where he thought about this idea of why the past always seems so much better. And he did this by just using TV shows and movies. And he showed uh, those to a, a sample group of people. And what he found was that people consistently tested as preferring past movies and TV shows to present ones because, he says, we have what he calls memory bias towards the past. We, we prefer the past. We remember it with a, a glowing review. It's nostalgic. It's a good time. It's where we long for those good old days. And it's because our minds tend to operate kind of like, he says, a record store. And so in a record store, you can expect that when you go in, uh, if those existed anymore, kids, uh, they, would, they would have all of the hits from the old, right? The, the golden oldies. But you wouldn't expect to find like a really trash record from the 70s. No, no, no. But, but if, if you were to go in that same record store, you would find trash records from present day, current day, because the verdict's still out, right? Well, that's kind of how our memory works. So our memory keeps the good old memories. We tend to keep those more than we hang on to the good memories in the present. The present, we are thinking about both. Sometimes our good memories from the past, I bet you've experienced this, uh, they can lead us 
they can lead us to experience what I would call nostalgic paralysis, right? A a longing for the past of the way things were in such a way that it causes us to become frozen in our present so that we really can't live to the glory of God in the way that He wants to because we're so stuck. Well, we're back in our Broken Down House series in Haggai 2 this morning where Haggai addresses a people who remember a past, but catch this, it really was a lot better than the present that they were experiencing. Like, it's not just that they were thinking like, man, the past was awesome, but it really wasn't. No, it was a much better past than the present that they were living in. And so many of them were, I am sure, discouraged. Now just think about this. Haggai, who delivers this prophecy, and others who were with him probably were old enough to remember the glory of Solomon's temple that they had seen with their own eyes before Babylon destroyed it in 586 B.C. And and, and, uh, it was then that you'll remember also that they remembered being in the land and experiencing the city of God, and yet all of them had been cast out of Jerusalem. Boy, what fond memories they must have had. Fifty years later, Persian King Cyrus sent King Zerubbabel back to Jerusalem with a small remnant of people to rebuild the temple. Now you'll remember last week that enemies briefly delayed their work. But here we are 16 years later in the book of Haggai and they're still distracted from rebuilding the temple and preoccupied with building their own homes. I mean, there's still no fuss to move that bus and see a newly restored house for God, for God to meet with His people. Like, there's no, they're not moved, right? And then last week we saw in Haggai 1, God comes and speaks and God's people are moved. This week, we're in Haggai 2. We're just a month later, a few weeks, and we find that the work seems to have ceased temporarily yet Again, and it's in this moment of silence that Haggai visits him again and says, I I have a message for you again. God has another message for you before this overwhelming task before you. I want you to know that God encourages you this morning to be strong because I am with you and the best is yet to come. That's what Haggai is going to say this morning. We're going to look at that. He tells him to be strong because I am with you and the best is yet to come. Those are the encouragements. Now we see this first in in verses 1 to 3 where I believe this situation unfolds that Haggai is going to speak into. In verses 1 to 3. Let's look there again in your copy of God's Word. We're in the book of Haggai again. If you're looking back for it, uh, you want to go ahead and turn there with me. I'm going to be in there this whole time. Um, If you're having trouble, find it. It's between the Z's in the Old Testament, Zephaniah and Zechariah. Uh, You can start in Malachi, the last book, and work your way back, and you'll find it really quickly. I'll be reading from there, beginning in the first three verses. All right, Haggai 2, verses 1 to 3. In the seventh month, important, the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak the high priest, and all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Is it not as nothing in your eyes now? Now, don't miss the significance here of the timing of Haggai's three questions that he he asked in verse 3. 
It's easy to gloss over it. Now, verse 1 is more than a date stamp that just reminds us, oh, by the way, this took place on October 17th, 520 B.C. It, it means more than that. See, this is just a few weeks, you'll remember, after Israel got to work on the temple in chapter 1. Now, timing, it might not be everything, but I believe that it's something here. See, it's the seventh month, the same month of the Feast of Tabernacles that they would have been celebrating, and also uh, the month that you'll remember Solomon dedicated the temple to God. So you can imagine that they would have had all kinds of memories and thoughts that were going through, flooding their minds in this season. See, the Feast of Tabernacles, it celebrated God delivering Israel out of Egypt to live in booths. And they celebrated this with a nationwide camping trip. Who likes camping? Anybody? If you don't, it's too bad. We're taking a camping trip next summer. There's a plug. Well, if you've, if you've ever been camping, then you know how uh, camping could be helpful for reminding them of an experience in Egypt awaiting to enter into the land. Uh, friends, this is not the kind of camping that maybe some of you are thinking about. We're not talking about cabin camping. This is pre-Winnebago camping, right? This isn't like you bring your hotel to the campground and you settle in and then you're like, man, that was great roughing it. And then you go back. They did not have AC. Uh, they did not have a Keurig. Uh, they didn't have satellite, dish, or Wi-Fi. This is not that kind of camping. Now, I'm not against that kind of camping. That's actually my favorite kind of camping. But, but here, that's not what they had in mind. That wasn't the kind of camping that caused a remembering of what God had done. See, in this feast, what they were trying to do is remind them of that time in life when they had gone into the desert that horrible desert and been banished there by God because of their sin of not obeying God and entering into the promised land. And he says, you know, I'm going to send you to the wilderness once a year for a camping trip so you can remember that disobedience, but also God's faithfulness in sending you back home into the land and how I provided for you and how I was good to you. And year after year, I'm going to remind you with a camping trip of just what that's like. See, we, we see here that God loves to use tangible examples to remind the people of God of what they are called to. And the camping trip during the Feast of Tabernacles did this. They were reminded of their living in tents in the great and terrible wilderness where they wandered for 40 years because of their disobedience. And it caused them to long for their homes, right? You ever been camping? You, you ever been like sleeping uh, on the ground for like three days? Went with Carrie recently, uh, like a few years ago. That's recent enough. And we went camping and uh, we had this blown up uh, uh, sort of air mattress that had a slow leak in it. And so the, after the first day, um, the first night, I woke up in the middle of the night, I was cold. There was a hole in our tent. Um, there was a raccoon scratching on the door. And um, the, the, the whole bed went like flat, right? And so I'm feeling sticks under me, poking me in the back. And, and I'm uncomfortable. And I'm thinking, this is not fun. And where'd my wife, who loves camping, that I'm doing this for go? And she went into one of the campers, you know? She found like one of those Winnebago's and like went to, so this is great. I love camping. I'm like, I don't like camping. And, and yet, here's what's going on. Like, I'm uncomfortable in a way that I'm comfortable at home. And I, I'm remembering my bed and that's what I'm comparing it to, right? I'm thinking about how, how good my home, my bed is. I'm dreaming about my, why am I not in my bed, right? 
And, and in the same way, after about three days and my kids haven't taken a shower, I'm thinking, why are they not showered? And where are they going to shower? And this is getting really rank and it's time to go home, right? We need to get clean again. And it would have been, I think, the similar thing for Israel. Like, it's time to get home. Like, we, we don't like this. This is what disobedience means. We want to be obedient to God because it's good to be obedient to God and in God's house, with God, in His presence, worshiping God. It's exactly the thing that they were reminded of in this season as they looked over at this dilapidated temple that was an embarrassment compared to the former glory of Solomon's temple. And not to mention that, it is the seventh month that the temple of God was dedicated by Solomon. And so I'm sure they're thinking to themselves, Solomon's temple, it is gone. We will never see anything like that ever again. And so we've been told to go to work, but how discouraging. We will never see anything like what God has done in the past. It is a broken down house of God. And they feel like they will never meet with God in the way that they have met with in the past. They are hopeless. It is hard to be hopeful even though they have heard from God. And in verse 3, God asked them three questions. Three questions to just help them see where they're at and help them know that He knows where they are. He says, one, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Two, is it not as nothing in your eyes? And of course, uh, He also asked them uh, there if they really understand where they're at. Commentator Bruce Walkie says Israel's two great problems are the past seemed incomparably better than the present and the present seemed much less worthwhile, right? Like, does our work really matter if it's never going to be like that was? Like, does anything we do matter if it's not like that? Catch this. Haggai doesn't ignore their sadness. He steps into their season of sadness with them. That season that forced Israel to consider just how much things had changed And he does this, and he speaks God's word so that he can help them fight back that nostalgic paralysis, right? Of like just becoming stagnated because of the past and the way that it fights with their hearts. And that's where past victories have caused them to freeze up before present challenges. Have you ever experienced this kind of feeling? Have you ever experienced this kind of feeling of like the past glories will never compete with the present experiences of your life? And you think maybe it just doesn't even matter anymore. The best days have passed. Everything from here is just going to kind of throttle out at neutral or maybe even slightly decline or maybe rapidly decline. But it can't be like it was. See, good past memories can immobilize our hands and seize our hearts looking to the future. We recently held a discovery group at Trinity Bible Church and we had 50 members of our church come together and we're just planning for the future. What, what can God do? What is God going to do? And one of the things that we did with this group is we actually traced the history of Trinity back to 1968. And we had people that actually have been here since then. And we went through a timeline and we put red posties for bad events and blue posties for good events. And we just did it through the whole chronology of our church. And you know what was fascinating on that giant timeline that we put up on that wall? It was amazing. An amazing movement of God, a revival that should have been caught by books. We never had one bad experience for the first 20 years of our existence. Not one. It was all like glorious rainbows, right? And uh, we all laughed a little bit, but it didn't surprise us because that's the way the mind and the heart work, right? I mean, we look back and we, we eliminate like sort of, you know, anything that's not a golden oldie and we hold on to those things that are good. And I don't think that's bad. It's the way that we just tend to work. See, the past seems here to be in, in Haggai's experience. He, he sees this and he, he says it just seems to be incomparably better than what's happened in the past. And so what do we do with that? 
How do we respond to that? When the, the past seems to be incomparably better than the present, and, and I'm sure in Haggai's day, they were wondering whether their obedient response even mattered anymore. Well, maybe this morning, that's you. You're, you're, you're suffering from nostalgic paralysis, or maybe you already have it. You know, both past failures and, and even successes can freeze you in the present. So maybe there's some significant change in your life or your experience that has immobilized you because the past was so good that you can't stand the present. Maybe you feel like your best days have passed and it's hard to feel motivated to move. Maybe, uh, for instance, you are single and you think that you've missed an opportunity at a godly spouse and you're left wondering if you'll ever find the companionship that you desire. Have I just missed it? I I remember I had a great relationship back then. I decided no, but man, if I had, if I knew what I knew now, then I would have said yes because it was much better than I remember. Or maybe you feel like you you married the wrong person and, and you find yourself roaming on Facebook for past relationships just to check out what you've missed because you remember it better than what it was. Or it could be that your kids are out of the house now and their lives seem to be moving on without you and you. You don't know what to do with yourself anymore. Those are the best days. Maybe it's, it's political memories. And, and so you, you watch the election, what's going on in our nation, and oh, if it was just like the days of Reagan. If we had the days of Reagan, everything would be better. Maybe it's not Reagan. Maybe it's someone else for you. Maybe it's Carter. You, you're moved. You're moved by the past in ways that cause you to become just immobilized. Could be something that's more spiritual. Maybe it's past sins that you, you think that if you were to talk to your younger self, your younger self would have thought that your older self would be further along spiritually than you are right now. You remember the excitement that you had when you were at, at a youth camp or a college camp, or, and you don't know if you could ever feel that way about God again. Don't know if God does that for you anymore, if He does that at all anymore. Or maybe it's that this morning you remember the glory days uh, of your church. Glory days when your church had a thousand people and everyone was happy and new converts were baptized weekly and, and you always felt the Spirit's presence. And you're immobilized and you don't know what to do. And what happens in those moments? What happens? Our hearts begin to rehearse all of the positives of the past, and there are many, and all of the negatives of the present, and there are more. And the problem is, is that we're talking to ourselves more than we're listening to God, right? We're talking to ourselves a lot about what's wrong in the world, not listening a lot to God and His promises. So God, catch this, He might be on the move, and yet we are stuck. Our hearts are stuck. And so our hands are stuck. So please hear me. Some of our greatest problems came from being, and come from being, some of our greatest problems come from being slow to listen to God and quick to listen to ourselves. Slow to listen to God and quick to speak to ourselves. And notice here that in this moment, in this reality, God interrupts their conversations with themselves and He speaks. And what does God say when He speaks? Well, look at verse 4 where He tells them, Be strong because of God's presence, your presence, and your future. That's what He tells them. 
I know how you feel right now. The darkness setting in. But be strong. Because of God's presence in your future. Look what he says in in verse 4. There what he says at that first half of of verse 4. This is what he tells him. How he responds. He says, yet now. I know what it looks like, but be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all ye people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Just just hear this. He's speaking to a, a king who has no throne, to a priest who has no temple, and to a small remnant whose total numbers are fewer than the workers who built on Solomon's temple. They didn't look, they just didn't look uh, weak. They, They felt weak and helpless standing before God's broken down house, right? His temple where he met with them. And that, that temple that, that should have been a mark of glory when built because it was torn down reminded them of failure. Failure spiritually. Politically, militarily, and financially. And so when they saw this temple, it didn't bring them hope. It brought them despair. And what does God say? God tells them to stop listening to themselves and start listening to His promise. He says, and God tells us this weak people He tells them something that you and me need to hear today as well. What does He tell a people that that feel hopeless before what seems to be a broken world that that, that there's not going to be any change that's going to come into? He gives them two words that are so important that we need to hear today too. Be strong. Those are the words. That's a message that God has for you and He has for me. Be strong. That's what God's calling us to as God's people. Is that you? Do you need to hear that today? Do, Do you feel... Small, useless, helpless, and maybe hopeless. I mean, let me just tell you, I can resonate with those feelings depending on the time of the day one way or another, right? And here, uh, we hear God's voice coming into that, that disillusionment, and you hear the voice of God Himself saying, be strong, be encouraged. You don't have to be spiritually yoked to be strong for God. Isn't that encouraging? Don't have to. Don't have to bench a lot to be strong for God. Even great men and women of God from the past, they needed to hear this too. That encourages me, right? I'm not alone in this. Nothing uncommon to man under the sun. See, Moses told Israel to be strong and courageous when he wouldn't be able to enter into the promised land with them. And you'll remember that God appointed Joshua leader of Israel. And he told him to be strong and courageous. And likewise, David told Solomon to be strong and courageous when he took the throne over Israel. Catch this. When God's people face a great change in leadership or geography that makes them feel small and incapable, and they want to freeze, God says, be strong. And that encouragement? I get that it's fearful, but I want you to know words coming from up top, be strong. See, Maybe you're thinking here, Pastor, that sounds a lot easier than it is to do it, right? I mean, you just told me to be strong and I feel weaker every time you yell it. And and I'll be honest with you, like, I know sometimes that's how it feels in your prayers when you're pursuing God and you're like, God, I know you want me to be courageous right now, but I feel like I'm getting increasingly fearful before the task that you have before me and us. And yet, uh, what we 
what we know in our hearts is, is that our hearts will lie to us. You know, they'll tell us things like, well, great, you tell me to be strong and I feel like you're telling me to pull myself up by my boot straps, right? Or my shoelaces. Have you ever tried to pick yourself up by your shoelaces? Anybody? I've tried that. I don't have them today or I would do it right now. But it's a lot like inviting somebody to levitate. Now, unless you're like David Blaine or one of those magicians, like, you can't do that, right? And if he's doing it, he's tricking you. Like, you don't, you can't pick yourself up like that. And so maybe when you hear God say, be strong, you're like, you're asking me like, maybe to like pull some kind of trickery, but never to actually do that. That's impossible. I mean, you see what's before me. And yet here, God says, be strong, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say just do it in and of yourself. I'm not asking you to do the impossible. He says be strong because because of this. There are two realities for us today that, that should empower us, encourage us to be strong in God. One is God's presence. And two is their future hope. He says these are the things that ought to mobilize you to be encouraged and moved. Right? So we're going to look at that first one. That first one is, he says, be strong now because of God's presence. Be strong now because of God's presence. Look again with me in verse 4 at what he says. Verses 4 and 5. He says, yet now be strong. And then he goes on. Notice where he begins saying, work. In the second part of verse 4. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst Fear not. So be strong. Don't be afraid. Now catch what he's saying here. This is, I think, so encouraging and encouraging for us. Did you catch what he said? Be strong and work because I'm with you. In fact, I was with you before the temple, right? I led you into e- out of Egypt. Like I was with you then. And I'm still with you. And who are you, God, who, who tells me to be strong and to be courageous who who are you how should I think about you well he tells you I'm the Lord of hosts right Yahweh Sabaoth I'm the great God all-powerful that's the God who is with you so Israel is working through God's strength now catch this I think this is so important right here we see in the Old Testament just like the new God's good news to his people has present implications not just future in other words it's not just like hope for the future before the judgment seat of God it's hope for today and how we live our lives right you you live today because I'm with you and in me and in the future you have your great hope when you're going to be with me more so here we see this great promise it's it's that Israel is not called to be strong because they are strong or how much they can bench press. They're called to be strong because their God is, right? So this reminds me a lot of um, the way that uh, I've told you before stories about like me and, and Jack and, and doing workouts and using like pull-up bars and that kind of thing. And it's so fun um, to try to work out in my house because I have like this, these three little boys who anytime I want to exercise, they're like, we want to exercise too, and have you ever tried to like do exercises for four little boys? Um, it's, it's entertaining, I gotta say that. Uh, a little bit frustrating at times, but I love it. I'm sure I'll look back in the past and long for those days. But when I was spending time with Jack, I love it, but we, it always comes time to the pull-up bar. 
And when he comes to the pull-up bar, he comes over to it. It's so funny. Like, he's like, can I go first, Dad? And I'm like, sure, go ahead. And he just looks at me like, ah, oh, come on, Dad. And I'm like, what? And he's like, I can't do it if you don't help. And I'm like, what? Oh, all right. So I come over to little Jack, right? And I pick him up, and he grabs on. And he loves it. I mean, he can do pull-ups. He likes to do, like, flip-arounds. And then, like, he'll do this thing where he, like, puts his legs between his arms, and he's almost going to fall and break his head if I'm not there. And I'm sitting there, and I'm helping him all along the way, and I put him down, and he loves it. And he, he loves to do it. Now, here's the deal. Jack can't do that if Dad's not there. It's just a reality. If I'm not there, if, I'm not, if it's not Dad's muscle helping him, that job is impossible. He can't even reach it. And yet here, uh, we find the same kind of picture with God and his people. He says, look, I'm calling you, who you don't even have authority over yourselves, Persia does, to go and to build a temple that, that I want to compare with the glory of Solomon's temple. And you're looking at it and you're thinking to yourself, there's no way. We don't have the resources. We don't have the people. We don't have what it takes. And yet God says, I want you to go do this and catch this. I'm not calling you to do it because you can do it. I'm calling you to do it because you, your God can, right? It's exactly what God calls us to do spiritually. He's not calling us to be holy because we can be holy without Him or to be faithful because we can be faithful without Him. To love others who are hard because we can do it without Him. He's calling us to do things that we cannot do in and of ourselves apart from Him. We need a strong, vigorous, spiritual life that is in Christ. That is constantly seeking resources that only He can provide to do work that only He can do. And God says, when I tell you to build a temple, be faithful and watch me work. Watch me do more than your flimsy muscles can explain so that God gets the glory, catch this, for His glory being amongst His people. Do <laughs> you see that? He even gets the glory for the glory being amongst His people. Like they don't even get glory for that. All to God. And that's God's plan for Christians as well. You'll remember in Ephesians 6.10 that Paul tells Christians, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Flex your faithfulness and watch God move. Be strong. That's what he wants us to do. Well, how how are you strong? Well, be strong and share the gospel with that neighbor that you are scared of not being able to do it right. You're scared of losing that relationship. And you find yourself cowering before them, not because they're mean or nasty. Uh, In fact, they're probably pretty kind, but because you are fearful. God says, be strong, don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm your God. Be strong and, and seek out someone to disciple even when you feel deficient, right? You, you feel like maybe you don't have the resources. Or maybe you're reminded of some kind of past experience where you felt like you wasted your time because you were either abandoned or you didn't quite see the fruit that you had hoped. Be strong. Be strong in your marriage when you feel like maybe the past five or even ten years have been hard. And look to God in prayer and in His Word and submit yourself to God trusting that He can do more than you based on your own strength. Be strong in your singleness. Be strong knowing that you're not less human because you are single. You're not less human because you're single. You're not a deficient human being because you are not married off. You've been made fully in the image of God. You you need to be strong knowing that God has appointed this specific time in your life for you to be more devoted to Him. Having more opportunities to serve Him. To pray. To to go and, and seek after Him. Be strong. Find a way to give your time to serve your brothers and sisters at Trinity Bible Church. Even though the job may seem small. 
and insignificant, like maybe nursery or cleaning nursery toys or keeping or doing sound, whatever it might be that you might think is a small thing in your eyes, realize that it's serving God's people and God himself with his strength. Be strong in giving, even though it feels insignificant, knowing that maybe it feels small, you don't have much to give. Be faithful in giving a little, knowing that God has in the past taken just a few fish and fed thousands. Be faithful, trust God, and watch Him work. See, being strong isn't just about muscles. It's not, it's not just about muscle, it's about demeanor and it's about attitude. So when we hear this, we should, we should know that what God is speaking about is not just being strong and like getting to work, but the way that we work. And we ought to have hearts that are happy and hopeful before God. That's strength, an inner strength of trusting God. Things don't look the way I want. And yet, I'm going to trust God and be happy and work happily and faithfully. And I'm going to trust that God's going to bring about unexpected fruit for the glory of His name. It's about attitude. See, that's why when we look at the Bible... And we see a call to be strong. We shouldn't be thinking, okay, that's for the men folk. Right? Like, be strong is for men because that's what men do. Men work out, men are strong. Women don't, unless they're like strangely like athletic, like Ronda Rousey or something. Like, we don't, we don't see women as being like strong and, and powerful and that kind of thing. And yet, spiritually, when we see God tell his people to be strong, he speaks to a nation of people and says, men and women, I want you to be strong. Spiritually strong. Women, I want you to take confidence in God's Word. I want you to hold to it. I want you to be fearless before the obstacles that face you, just like I want your husbands to. That's exactly what God calls God's people to do. To be a a people whose strength is not in themselves, that will cause you to have identity crisis, but where you find your strength in Him and Him alone. See, great things are going to happen, not because I'm great or because we're great, but because of the Lord of hosts and that He is. Expect anticipated fruit from faithfulness to spring up to the glory of God because God's presence is present in our present. You'll have to go back and re-listen to that. But there's another reason to be strong. And that's be strong because your future is incredibly bright in verses 6 to 9. Be strong because your future is incredibly bright. Did you see this? This is a, an amazing kind of picture. Notice what he says. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What a promise. You'll notice that he says the better days are yet to come. In fact, uh, verse 6, notice it begins with this little word, for. For. That word for tells us the reason Israel can trust God in the present is because God promises their future is incredibly bright. He, he throws their attention forward to a, to a future day when he's going to shake not just the earth, but the heavens themselves. Earthquakes, you'll take note, they happen all the time. But heaven quakes are special. In fact, I've never seen one. Never seen a heaven quake. 
But if you start seeing the sky shake, or you think that you've seen one, then something's really wrong. Something's really wrong, or, or something's really right. See, everything trembling before God communicates the coming of God in a way that not only the people of God shake, but the totality of creation from heaven to earth, from the beast of the field, everything shakes before this unique presence of God that has come. He's been present before, but never like this. And all nations shake in verse 7, bringing in their treasures to build a house for God that exceeds even Solomon's temple in glory. I mean, just think about it. Israel's so paralyzed by the glorious past, they cannot bear to look at the present, much less the future. And they've told themselves, all is lost, what's the point? And God says, catch this, the best is yet to come. Your thoughts of you are not just too little, your thoughts of me are too little, your thoughts of the future are too small. Greater glory than you have ever seen, or that has ever been seen, awaits. Now even though verse 6 says it's in just a little while that this will happen, and you might be thinking maybe this happened shortly thereafter, maybe this was Herod's temple that fulfilled this because Herod later built a glorious temple that Jesus walked in that was magnificent, even expanded the the borders of the previous one. I, I believe this actually doesn't point to Herod's temple, but to Christ and what is coming in the new heavens and the new earth. Though some say that this might happen during the millennial reign, and there's disagreements about that. I think right now it's speaking of Jesus, and it also points forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Now, you'll remember that Jesus stood in Herod's temple in John 2, like we said last week, and he said, in three days I'm going to tear this down and I'm going to build it up again. And they thought he was crazy, but he said, actually, this is speaking of me and my body, where I'm going to die, be in the grave for three, year, for three days, and to be raised again from the dead, right? So that's what's, that's what's coming. It's me. I'm the, the fulfillment of what this temple pointed towards. This temple longed to see my day, and I'm here. And God's people, the, the Pharisees, didn't know what they had before them. The actual place where they could meet with God in a way that they, could, they had never met with Him before. See, but here, Jesus is, what we find is Jesus' death and resurrection actually saw a lot of these experiences. So Jesus' death and resurrection caused an earthquake, you'll remember, and, and the temple veil itself was rent, removing that thing that separated God's presence from God's people. Peace was proclaimed, and the nations began to be drawn to God. So there was sort of a fulfillment of this in, in a small way, even when Jesus came. But, but this is just a, a small foreshadowing that Jesus points us towards a greater coming when Jesus returns, right, in the New Testament. And this is nothing compared to the greater coming day that 2 Peter 3.10 speaks of when that countless throng will surround the throne of God like we see in Revelation 7. And the light of the glory of God and the Lamb lights the city. And where there is no temple because Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple forevermore. Revelation 21.22. You see that? Jesus. We've got Jesus. We don't need the temple anymore. We've got something better. And now in the end times, we have God and His Son forever lighting up the whole city of God. We don't need sun and moon anymore. We've got God who lights the city. Now, if you're wondering about how bright can the future be, that's a bright future, right? I mean, you don't get more light than the light of God Himself who says, guess what? The sun, it is, is no longer needed. 
You know, it's superfluous to have a son when you have the glory of God before you. That is inferior light. It is the light of the God of lights who created that light. And now that you got me, you don't need it anymore. And what a picture for the people of God that we see throughout the Scriptures of just how bright the future is for us. Maybe we can't describe it fully and the glory that awaits us, but we can't say anything else about how bright it's going to be. The whole earth will be filled with the unprecedented glory of God. And Christian brothers and sisters, I don't know what your past is, but that's our future. That's your future. So don't let nostalgic paralysis cause you to forget God's presence in our future. No matter how dark the past, don't let it dim the reality of that incredibly bright future that awaits you. See, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus has defined our present and future, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, this life in the present is about being united with Jesus. This life right now, living is Christ. And, and dying is what? It, it's gain. So living is Jesus and dying means more Jesus. That's what we have to look forward to. That's the hope that stands before us. And so much of our nostalgia, I know that it can come to fantasy that causes us to hate the present. And I hate it so much that we struggle to be faithful in the little things that lie before us. But when we hear God's call to be strong because God is present and our future is incredibly bright, we're empowered to be faithful with the little things even amidst trials like Jonathan Edwards. So much of this is being faithful in the little things. That's so much of what Christianity is. Being faithful day in and day out with the small things. I'm reminded of, I believe, the way that Jonathan Edwards looked at life in this. See, I believe Jonathan Edwards, uh, he's one of my favorite theologians from the past, and I, I believe that he had a good perspective on both his present in Christ and, and also the future that awaited him. And I believe that that actually determined the way that he dealt with present trials and struggles and lived a life that was faithful. He was strong because he understood these things. And one experience came to mind when I was thinking about this text. Now, many saw Jonathan Edwards, if you don't know him, as one of the great philosophical, theological minds that our, our country has ever produced, and especially in the age that he grew up in in the 1700s in Northampton. Now, if you don't know much about him and his significance in history, he was one of the leaders of the Great Awakening. It actually kind of gave birth out of his church in Northampton, a congregational church where he preached the word, and they all of a sudden saw a revival that broke out in America that was incredible. And in fact, uh, we find the zenith of this, um, of this movement in 1740 to 1742, where tens of thousands of people came to faith in Christ and showed incredible fruit and spiritual fruit, uh, such that they even had to start figuring out, like, how do we determine what's real and what's not? Because there's so many powerful evidences of the Spirit here. Now imagine this. A man that led one of the greatest revivals that our country, maybe that our world has ever experienced, just 10 years later, on June 22nd, 1750, was fired by 90% vote of his membership after 24 years of ministry, largely due to rumors later proved by others to be false. His people gossiped, they slandered and disdained him until he left, and just a decade after leading a massive movement of the spirits, that, that's leading a massive movement of the Spirit of God that's still being written about, that man was fired. 
Just think about it. We talk about going from glory to brokenness. Can you imagine? Like leading a people to see unprecedented movements of God to a people saying, over gossip, you're gone. We talk about going from glory to brokenness. Well, catch this. I believe that it might be in that moment that we saw what Jonathan Edwards was really made of and we saw his truest strength. We might have seen his strength, I believe, more in his brokenness than we saw in him leading the great revival. See, Jonathan Edwards' obedience to God's command to be strong was at its best in his suffering and in this experience where he was fired. Uh, Ian Murray's biography records an observer who watched Jonathan Edwards in this moment of his life, right? They saw him in the, the revival, but they also saw him here. And this is what they said about Edwards. That, that faithful witness received the shock unshaken. I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week. Wish I could just go a day. The whole week. But he appeared like a man of God whose happiness, hear this, words that should stick with you, whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies and whose treasure was not only a future, but a present good, overbalancing all the imaginable ills of life, even to the astonishment of many who could not be at rest without his dismission. Did you hear that? His happiness out of the reach of his enemies. You see that? Why? Because he was strong. Why was he strong? Because he knew that God was present with him. And he knew that his future was incredibly bright. And he knew that his treasure was beyond the reach of anyone who would rob him. And that's exactly what caused this man to be faithful in the difficult little things, just like the great things. See, Edward's faith in God's presence and his future enabled him to fight off nostalgic paralysis and to be faithful to God in the small things amidst trial. Friend, are you ready to live a life that is full in this way to the glory of God? Just think about it this morning. I'm going to pray for us. Just take a moment and just think to yourself. Let's bow our heads and spend some time with God just for a moment. I want you just to, to ask yourself, ask God some questions this morning just about your own heart. Are there ways that you have given up on God in your marriage or in your church or in your friendships or or other ways? Are there ways that you've just given up that you find yourself discouraged and immobilized in the present from living for the glory of God? Just take some time and and ask yourself those questions and, and ask that God would rescue from those things. That He would give you hope. Confidence in His presence. A bright future for Maybe you know somebody in this room this morning who is discouraged from the past, maybe from the present. They've lost sight of God's presence in their future. and Just pray for them specifically.
Maybe this morning you don't know Christ. And you don't have a a future hope. And you want one. Let me encourage you to pray now and ask God to help you turn from your sin and turn to Him. Put your faith in Him that you might be saved. Confessing that you want a, a hope and a bright future and a present relationship with Christ that gives you strength for every day.